you saw a packet, you saw it online, you saw the, the, you saw the clothes, you saw the shoes, you saw the thing on alibaba.com or AliExpress or on Amazon and you buy it, you get it and it's nothing like you paid for. Anyone else done that? You've, you've seen the package and the product looks very different. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And for those of us, I know we've got a, a bunch of visitors. Welcome this morning. We're so appreciative of the time you've given to join our church family today. For those who are online, great to have you here. If you are visiting, my name is Mark and I have the privilege of leading this wonderful church family. And uh, if you're visiting for the first time, you've chosen a good day because I'm, I'm starting a, the, the first of a small series of message, messages uh, which I've titled Losing My Religion. And we're not going to break into the 1991 song uh, unless you're super keen on that, but that's not going to happen. Uh, but there's, I want to start by talking about the video that we just watched. Who's ever seen, you, you watch, who's got Netflix? This is not a guilt trip, it's just the facts. And you watch the previews that come up on Netflix, and you think, well, this looks like a good movie. Now, we can have this just this week. This looked like a good movie. And then you watch it and you go, yeah, not so good. Anyone relate to that? And so the, 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 the product or the, the promotion doesn't match the actual movie. And uh, whether it's clothing or food or, or uh, movies. And what, what happens when you watch those things or buy those things? Typically, you're not going to buy that burger again, are you? You're going to go, you know what? The, the product didn't match the package. And so we have high hopes, we have high expectations on a whole bunch of things. And when it doesn't live up to its claims, we tend to get disappointed. Or if you're like me, you want your money back, and Amazon are very comfortable giving my, my money back on things that don't work out. That's why I like Amazon. This is not a product, and I don't get any commission for this, but um, it'd be good if I could. So anyway, or at least we vote with our feet. We're not going to do this again. And so um, the concept of losing my religion, do you know what? In 2021, the Australian Bureau of Statistics did their annual census every five years. We we have someone, we fill in forms and we, the government takes a snapshot of our country. And uh, what we discovered, which I'm sure if you've been following some Christian social uh, commentators, you would see that in 2020, in 2016, the percentage of our country that said the Christian 51, 40, 52, I can't even read, you can read that, 52.1%, no religion, 30.1%. In 2021, what was the... Okay, can you see what's going on here? Yeah. And so, you can read, I didn't tell you that. You can see we've got a decrease of people identifying as Christians, an increase of people who say, I have no religion. They have lost their religion. And it would seem, if you dig into the data, uh, that every, pretty much every mainstream denominational group declined from 2016 to 2021 including the, the Pentecostal group that we typically associate ourselves with. Well, some do, we, we tick that box, or the, uh, previously it's the Pentecostal churches that have been on the increase, but we're noticing there's some shifting happening in the data. And, uh, and most Christian commentators would say, you know what, this trend would likely continue. What it is, people are stepping away typically from identifying themselves with traditional established churches. Um, and they're saying they're largely people have just gone to church and they're slowly disen disengaging from their church. In fact, uh, out of those figures, that's 1.2 uh, million people from in five years in the, have lost their religion. 
1.2 million people have said, you know, five years ago I had religion, now I don't have religion. Of those 1.2 million, 1.1 million of them, uh, which is 95%, uh, from the Anglican, Catholic, Uniting and Presbyterian church denominations. That's the categories the uh, Bureau of Statistics would indicate. You know, and in some ways, I get it. I understand their sentiment. I have family and friends who have a belief in God, but don't want to align themselves with dead, dry, irrelevant, legalistic, and what they would think is hypocritical religion. So I've got family and friends who are like this. And so even I cringe when, uh, when I have to fill in forms, I have to write sometimes my professional ticket box, and the box says, I am a minister of religion. I hate ticking that box, because I don't want to be a minister of religion. I'd much rather have a box that says, I'm a passionate follower of Jesus, who wants to bring his life and love and grace into the world. If there was a box for that, I would tick it. And so, I don't want to focus too much on the statistics. I think the wonderful part of this is, this is God's church. This is God's, we are God's people. And I'm not discouraged by that. It shows me that the church is being shaken. It's showing me that people's faith is being shaken and what's really important will come to the front. And so as the numbers decline, what the Christian social commentators would say is that what we're finding is the church are going to be, the numbers will reflect those who are passionate for Jesus, which I think is a great thing. Great thing. So I don't want to spend too much time looking at the statistics other than ask one question. The question is why? Why is this happening? Of the 1.1 million people who lost their religion in the last five years, 400,000 of them were 18 to 25 year olds who said in 2016, this group would say in 2016, I have faith, I have religion, I associate religion. This is the largest demographic that was affected in the last five years. 400,000 18 to 25 year olds that said five years ago, I'm happy to associate with some form of Christianity. And they're saying five years later, not interested at all in any way. And I guess as, as an eldership and part of our, uh, the intentional step we had to, um, to employ and to appoint Dave and Elle, nice of you to join us. Uh, how's the car? Battery's all good. <laughs> um, part of the reason we, we stepped up in faith, we understand that this is the largest demographic that is, that is falling away. No, it's not just falling away from church, they're falling away from faith. And so what I want to talk about in the next four weeks, four-ish weeks, is, is exploring a little bit about why this has happened. Why the product doesn't match the package. You know, I grew up in the Blue Mountains, uh, and I spent six years at high school in Katoomba. And so every, every day the bus would drive around the, the little cliff drive, and we get to see the magnificence of the Blue Mountains. And so um, people would travel from all around. In fact, during my work experience, I worked in the uh, Katoomba Skyway, and uh, that's sort of uh, other side to make that point, that, that, over that side. But that's the, that's the view that people would come all around the world for the Three Sisters. They would, on the, on, the, on the magazines, on the internet, on the brochures, this is what they're promoting. And so this is what people often, it's a day trip, people would come 
into Sydney. They do a day trip, a whole day to travel from across the world into Sydney, up to the Blue Mountains, looking for this. But what often would they find? That. <laughs> Who can relate to that? I felt so sorry for these people. They travelled all the way looking for something and it wasn't quite what they expected. What they experienced, the reality is, the view is still there, true? It's not that the three sisters had gone. The experience, the, 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 the beauty was still there, but it was masked by, by a fog. And so, this is perhaps, just perhaps, part of the reason people are losing their religion. Could it be that the, they're looking for the three sisters, they've looked at all the postcards and promotion and talk and language that we as Christians have promoted, and yet when they come to faith or they come to look at what Christianity is, they may see something very different at the time. I mean... Hold that thought, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Last year, I read a book that really helped me understand some of what is going on in this space. And uh, the, the book is, was recommended to me by Says. Thank you, Says. This was uh, the book is called With. Everyone say With. Yeah. It's uh, by Sky Jathari, and the author. And so the author identifies four different postures, four different views, four different images. Four different perspectives that we may have on God, or we may relate to God, that may be a little bit like the three sisters. You, you're got the, the image is still there, but our view is masked by what's going on in the external circumstances. And so, instead of me talking about, there's four postures which are up here. He talks about life over God, life under God, life for God, and life from God. We're going to be talking about those over the next few weeks. But before we deep dive into the first one, I'm going to get Sky himself to summarise what these four are. Thanks, Owen. <laughs> A few years ago, a sociologist studied the religious lives of teenagers. What he concluded is that most of them had a view of God as either a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. In other words, they weren't particularly interested in God himself, only what he could do for them. This really shouldn't surprise us because most religious traditions teach us to use God to achieve some other desire. For example, in many traditions we're taught that we should live under God. By obeying commands, we're told God will bless us and be on our side. The idea is to use God to control one's life and world. Life over God says following the right principles is how to guarantee a good life. In this case, we use God as a source for practical help and advice. Life from God rightly teaches that He is our provider, but that's all it sees Him as. This posture makes Him into a divine vending machine to give us what we desire. Life for God makes everything about God's mission in the world. It uses God to give us a sense of meaning and purpose. In each of these postures, God is used to achieve some other desire. He is a means to an end. He provides us with a sense of control or blessings or the principles by which we govern our lives or a sense of meaning and purpose and direction. And there's a truth to each of those postures. God does supply us with those things. But in the end, if we really want to experience life with God, which is the central calling of Jesus Christ, 
that we need to see that God is not merely the means by which we achieve our treasure. In the Christian faith, God is our treasure. The reason why a great many people in the church today are failing to experience the freedom and wonder of the Christian life is because they've never been taught to actually desire and want God. They don't treasure Him. Instead, they've been taught to merely use Him to achieve some lesser desire. To make sense of what a life with God actually looks like, let's break it down into three parts. Imagine someone dreaming of a new house, or a vacation, or a vintage Mustang. Life with that new car begins with dreaming about it, envisioning it, treasuring it. The same is true of life with God. We must first have a clear vision of who He is, His beauty, His goodness, and His love. When we don't have a clear vision of who God is, we're not going to desire Him. We won't treasure Him. At best, we'll seek to use Him to achieve something else. But in the scriptures, we're told that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, that He is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, we are given a clear and ravishing vision of who God is, of His beauty, of His love, of His goodness, and His power. That explains why people were crawling over themselves trying to be closer to Christ. Sadly today, few people are given a clear vision of who Jesus is, even within the church. Instead, we're given some lesser vision, a vision for the church or its growth, a vision for mission or for a better life, a happier family, a more successful job. And when that happens, God is reduced once again from the end and desire of our lives to just the means by which we achieve these lesser things. But treasuring isn't enough. You can dream about a vintage Mustang all day, but in order to live with it, you must actually acquire it. After treasuring God, we must be united with Him. By Christ's death and resurrection, the sin that has separated us from God is removed, and the way is open for us to be united with Him once again. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are united again with what we treasure most. Many people have come to believe that the gospel is about how we get into heaven. But if that's the full understanding of the gospel we have, all we've done is reduce God to a means to an end again. He's how we avoid hell. But the truth is, the gospel is not about how we get into heaven. The gospel is about how people get to God. It's about being united again with Him when He's our treasure. Finally, Life with God finds fulfillment as we experience Him. As with the previous two steps, this one is also made possible through Christ. By His example and by sending His Spirit, Jesus taught us what a life lived with God looks like. It's not just about prayer and reading the Bible, but it's the rich and mysterious mingling of our spirit with His in ceaseless communion. Every other posture of religious life, whether it's life under God, over God, from God, or for God, they each try to use Him to achieve some lesser desire. But life with God is different, because it doesn't want to use God, it wants God. But it all begins with a clear vision of who He is, a vision that comes to us by His grace through Jesus Christ. And when we receive it, God ceases to be a means to an end, and He begins to become our treasure. All right, so uh, this is some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the next few weeks and uh, who's looking forward to that yeah. I think it's really this has really helped me process and think about how we can live our faith what our faith is about and more importantly how we can what we're presenting what what image of God are we presenting to our family to our friends because we don't want to sell them a, 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 a image of God that is not what the Bible says so that's what we're going to explore and it's going to be a lot of fun
Uh, for those who, are, who don't know me, um, I'm not going to introduce myself again, but just so you know, I was born in India, hence the, uh, the tan that I have. And, um, and so in India, and I know I've been to India with, uh, with Dave and with Graham, we went, went there a few years ago, pre-COVID. And uh, in India, they, who's been to India? There's gods on every corner. Everywhere you go, you will find a god. Uh, there'll be one in the tree, there'll be one on the street, there'll be one on the corner. Uh, India has hundreds, thousands, if not millions of gods. And because the Indians believe that, uh, that these gods are in control of their lives. That their gods control their, their crops that they're growing, or their, the family that they're trying to raise, or the business that they have, or the, or the gods control the weather systems, the gods control their health, and the list goes on. And so they try really hard to please these gods. And you'll see uh, food at the, at, at the foot of these um, idols as sacrifice. They'll bring food to the idol to, to, if they're trying to have a child, they'll bring food to this god it's with, the, with the goal that that god would see their sacrifice and would bless them uh, with, with, with fertility or with whatever they need, what they're trying to achieve, trying to in some ways control their god to bring them the outcome they're looking for. They bring sacrifices, they perform rituals, they obey all the rules with the hope that they can appease an angry god or they can look for favour or look for blessing. Now that might seem a little bit strange to us in the Western world, but I reckon my experience and my time visiting India as an adult, I reckon that gives me the closest example of what I can come across to life in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we read, read a lot about these gods that, that people are worshipping and idols that they're worshipping and the, and the sacrifices they bring to try to appease their angry gods. And so, the Jews, as we, as we discover, they weren't polytheistic. That means many gods. The Jews were monotheistic. They only had one God. And this one God that they worshipped, uh, that they would view him as establishing rules to live by. Now, they would think that the rules were rules that we had to live by to please God. But the rules that God brought, you know, we, we know 10 of the most famous of them, uh, weren't designed to please him. Those rules were designed, in fact, that in the, the book of the law in the Old Testament scriptures, there were 631 rules that God gave to his people. Not in order to please him, but rules that made a society flourish. What to do if they had skin diseases, what to do if they had a, a dispute with their neighbor. And so they were just practical life living rules that God said that for a society to flourish, this is the way it'll work. And so they had their Ten Commandments, they had these other 631 rules that were found in, the, found in the Torah. And then by the time Jesus came along, Judaism had more than, more than just 631 rules. The religious leaders, we know them in the Bible, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had created more rules. Their rabbis had decided if there was a cliff here, and uh, they had a rule that says don't cross the line, the Jews were so adamant that they didn't want to cross the line. They had a rule here, a signpost here, that says don't cross the line, bad move. But so that, then they built a fence back here as well. Because they, they, they wanted people, before they even run the risk of, of crossing the line, they built fences. 
And so the rabbis, the teachers of religious law, what they did, they, they created extra fences around the rules that were in place that God didn't give, but man-made rules that said, don't do this, don't do this. Do you know what? There's over 2,700 man-made rules on top of what the, the rules that were found in Scripture. <coughs> Pardon me. And so over time, these man-made rules to the Jews became as, as important as the rules that God gave himself. Now, for a Jew, this was hard work. It's hard enough for us to keep the Ten Commandments, let alone the 631, let alone the 2,700 extra rules. And for the Jews, this was a burden. This was something that they struggled to live by. Because every day they had to make sure they didn't break one of these rules. And then, then if I break the rule, maybe God's going to get angry with me. Then maybe God's going to judge me or God's going to uh, not bless me. And this is, this is the burden that the Jews live by day in and day out. Have I done enough? Have I done enough to please God and to keep his blessings coming? And so no wonder these, these Jewish leaders, when Jesus turns up and he goes, you know what? Forget the 10, forget the 631, forget the 2,700 rules. I'm just going to give you two rules to live by. Love God, love others. No wonder the religious leaders who had fought so hard to create all these fences and rules and lines that they couldn't cross, no wonder they struggled to accept the message of Jesus that said two laws. This was revolutionary. Two laws that replaced every single other one. Now, that type of life is what life under God looks like. Living under God's control and trying to keep Him happy. And that's hard work when we're trying to keep God happy. Now, it's not just the ancient Israelites or the, or the modern Indians that are operating in this way. That living a life under God. Even us as Christians today, we've only got two rules that we, we're, we're encouraged to live with and by. But maybe even so today, we still struggle with our approach to God being the same way. Because when we're being blessed, oh, I must be pleasing God. If I'm being blessed, I must be doing enough. I, 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 must, be, I must be reading enough. I must be giving enough. Or the flip side is, and this is all we come across time and time again, when things aren't going the way we expect, uh, could have been, I just did the wrong thing. When we don't get that promotion, or we don't get the, the bid on the house that we offered, or, or we don't get the, the, the position that we applied for at school or at uni, when we don't get that, our thinking says, well, it's because of me. I've, I've done something that's made God unhappy, and so God is not pleased with me, so God doesn't bless me. That is life under God. And I want to explore a little bit around that before we, we wrap this message up. It's such a wrong view of God. Here's a verse in uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6. As parents, we love this verse. <laughs> Direct your children onto the right path, and when they're older, they will not leave it. Questions? Is this a promise or a proverb? Do I need to say that loud? Is it both? I certainly think this is an anchor of faith. This is something that we as parents and Christians should be holding on to and saying, Lord, I believe your scripture tells us if we do all we can to, to raise our children in your way, that they will walk that path. 
But I know, and maybe you know some, godly parents who've done this. And their kids have, to this day, walked away from God. And sadly, it's very easy for us today to think, it's my fault. I've done something that's displeased God. And so God, these children, I mustn't, I mustn't have trained them up the right way. There's so much pressure on us thinking we haven't done enough if our kids are away from God. I want to encourage you, hold on to this. If you have children, if you have that, that, are, that are struggling in their faith, hold on to this as a, as, a, as a promise from God. But also understand kids make their own choices. You are not responsible for the choices your children make. I'll expand this a bit further. In John chapter 9, Jesus comes across a blind man. And uh, in John chapter 9 verse 1, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Listen to this. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, was this man born blind or was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Here you see what life under God looks like. It's on display. In their view, in the disciples' view, blindness was a curse. Why? Because they disobeyed. Maybe the, 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 the child disobeyed. Maybe, maybe the parents disobeyed. And so the Jewish thinking was blindness was a curse from God. And so Jesus quickly deals with this false understanding. And, in verse, and, and so in verse 3, Jesus said, It wasn't because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. And then Jesus goes on to heal the man. Life under God. God blesses me if I do enough. God curses me if I sin. That was the Jewish understanding. Uh, here's, a, here's one that's a little bit different. In Luke chapter 18, a rich man comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus called him to, it's, it's more than doing the Ten Commandments because he ticked all those boxes. Jesus asked him to lay aside his wealth, sell all that you have and give it away to the poor. But the man was not prepared to do that. So the Bible says that he went away sad. And so when Jesus saw this in verse, in Luke 18, 24, when Jesus saw this man walk away, he said, how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who are listening were astonished by this, what Jesus just said. To them, wealth and health and prosperity were a symbol of blessing. If I'm healthy, if I'm wealthy, if I'm wise, it means God is blessing me. It means he's seeing all the good stuff I'm doing and he is blessing me for that. And here Jesus is making it very clear that not only, from, not only is disobedience, is, disobedience is not responsible for calamity. And I think there's people here who need to know that. There's people here who are facing situations and circumstances and you are blaming yourself and thinking, if only I did more, that's a lie. That's something which is going to be a burden that you can't carry and you shouldn't be carrying. It's not a revelation of the fullness of who God is. We, we, we are not called to live under the law. We are called to live by grace. I want to, I want to put a framework around that before I end the message though. So disobedience isn't responsible for calamity. 
On the flip side, obedience, it doesn't guarantee things are going to go okay. Just because you've, 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 you've prayed and you've given and you've fasted and you've served and you've put your name on the tea and coffee roster, and just, just because you've done all this type of stuff doesn't mean that things are going to go well with you and, and heaven to shine upon you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. If we try to live by God's rule, trying to please Him, with a warped sense, if only I could please God enough that He'll help me. He'll give me what I want. Can you see who we're trying to, can you see who's trying to control who? I know it's subtle, but we are, in many ways, our life under God says, Lord, if I do what you want under your conditions, then you, in some ways, are obligated to do what I want. And that's, that, that's the problem in the picture of the Christian postcard. That, that's the problem to say, if you this, become a Christian and, and have a look, this glorious, beautiful life and everything is going to turn out fine and you'll never have a difficulty or a challenge and your kids are going to be good looking and, and all that type of stuff. That's the, that's the postcard that we hold up and say, come to Jesus and receive all of this external stuff that looks so good. Like the three sisters, come to Jesus and experience the beauty of this. And yet when they come, sometimes on a foggy day. And the reality is, friends, God is not an equation. Life may not look like the Christian postcard. Now, it does not mean that, that God does not care or God is not good because he does and he is. But sometimes the fog of life, the chaos of the world affect our experience of God. As I said before, even when the fog is there, the three sisters are still there. They haven't disappeared. But sometimes our circumstance blinds us from what we can see, but we make judgments or perspectives on God based on what we can see. And so for many people, the result is disappointment, disillusionment with God. Could this be one of the reasons why many people, especially young adults, lose their religion? Could it be, this is why they, they tick the other box. I thought Christianity was going to be like this. That's what the postcard said. That's what the online image said. And yet when I buy the product, when I, it just doesn't match up. Could it be? That's why largely the 18 to 25 year olds, but across all of our nation, could it be that that's why they say, you know what? It's not what I expected. So as we do when we don't like the burger. We say, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tick that box because religion is not what people tell me it's about. You know, that might be you today. I don't know. You might be here today just, uh, maybe you are at the brink of, of ticking a box that says, you know what? Maybe I don't want to associate with God, if that's the God, if, if God is the one that's going to judge me, if God's going, if God's going to not bless me, if God's going to, if, if they, maybe you're there thinking, maybe you're about to lose your religion. And I know many of you here at church or you're online, if we don't tick the other box, sometimes we say, okay, 
I'm still going to come to church. I'm still going to do the God thing. And I'm just hoping if I try harder, maybe if I just give a little bit more, maybe, maybe if I pray a little bit more, maybe if I can read my Bible a little bit more, maybe, if I, maybe I can do some more stuff. Maybe, just maybe God will see me. God will notice me. And maybe God will bless me. Friends, that's life under God. And it's an incomplete understanding because, you know, as, as, I'll get there in a second. It's hard work. If that's how you're living, if you're living life under God, thinking that God is obligated and, and dependent on how you live, it's hard work for you. It's like the Jews trying to live 2,700 plus laws. I just hope I've got it right. And my prayer is for each of us that today, and it's already started to happen in worship, that you will get a more beautiful view of who Jesus is. That regardless of the fog and the circumstances of life that, that so often assail us and hit us and affect us, that you'll get to realize, you know what, it may look like fog, but, but I know, according to God's word, who he is. And he's good and he's beautiful and the circumstances I may be in right now may not feel good and they may not be beautiful, but I know God is there. The three sisters haven't gone away. So as, as we wrap up, let's go back to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Because they asked them to carry this heavy burden. You have got to obey not just 10, not just 631, but you've got 2,700 laws and rules and that burden you have to carry of trying to please God. That's when Jesus came. And this is where Jesus spoke. If you've been in church long enough, this is such a familiar passage to you. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and the burden I give you is light. What a beautiful invitation. For the, for the Jews that were hearing this, this itinerant rabbi teach this, they're saying, that is so beautiful. That is so different than the, than the world I've grown up in with the, with the experience of God where I've got to live under Him and under His conditions and under His regulations. That is so attractive that Jesus would come and say, come to me. Instead of focusing on those burdensome rules and rituals, and that is a heavy yoke, that we should come to Him. Friends, Jesus is inviting you right now to be with Him. It's a relationship. When, you, when you're with someone, there is closeness, there is intimacy. You don't need to wear your masks when you're with Him. You can, you, you can take off your mask and let them see you as you are, whether that's broken, whether that's messed up, whether that's confused, whether it's, well, whatever you're feeling, Jesus doesn't mind. He says, come to me. Lay aside that striving, that performance, that I've got to do more, I've got to give more, I've got to somehow do something to please God because things aren't going so well. So if I do more, maybe He'll, he'll help me. You've got to let go of that. He doesn't require rituals or sacrifices. We don't need to appease an angry God because, friends, Jesus is not angry with you. In fact, He says, I'm humble and gentle at heart. So does that mean what we do is not important? No, no, no. What we do is so important. Worshipping, praying, 
giving, serving, reading the Bible, and there's a whole bunch of other things that, that they are so important. But we shouldn't do them to please God. We shouldn't do them so God will accept us. We shouldn't do them so God will bless us. We should do them because that's how we respond to His grace and His love and His acceptance and His mercy. And the best thing is we get to live that kind of life with Him. We don't need to wait till we've done it to get Him. We get to do it with Him. We get to pray with Him. We get to worship not a, not a, not a God who's disinterested. We get to worship with Him. We, when, we, when we give of our finances and we, we tithe and we bring our offerings, we get to do that with Him and, and allow Him to bless what we're doing. As I said before, it doesn't mean we disregard what God says. In fact, Jesus says, I haven't got the verse here, but Jesus says in John 14 verse 31, He says, I'm going to do what the Father commands me to do. So He's the Son of God. Even He understands the importance of living a life in response to what God's asking of us. That's not, that's not religion. That's not doing what I have to do to please God. That is saying, I'm going to live this life because of what He's done for me. So when we follow Jesus, we're not, we're not guaranteed that everything happens to us will be good. I'm sure all of you know that. However, we're always guaranteed that the joy that we can experience when He's with us. He's with us in the valleys. He's with us through the fog. He's with us through our doubts, our fears, our confusion, our brokenness, through the, through the messed up situations we put ourselves or find ourselves in. He is with us, no matter what's happening. And we aren't called to live under that burden of trying to please Him. Appease God, manipulate the circumstances to make Him do what we want or what we can need so, so, he can, so that we can get good things from Him. Friends, God is the good thing. So this morning my encouragement as we start this little mini-series is that we've got to give up the burden of living a life under God and accept the blessing, the invitation. I can't even was talking about the invitation that Jesus says, will you be with me? Will you allow me to be with you? Will you allow me to walk through this life in all its mess and colour and joys and, and hardships? Would you allow me to be with you in that and stop striving after trying to make me love you more? Because you can do nothing to make me love you more and nothing you can do to make him love you less. Living with God. That's where we're going to start. We're not called to live under. We're called to live with. Everyone say that. We're not called to live under God. I am called to live with God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this amazing, beautiful day that we can worship, that we can gather, that we can encourage one another, that we can connect with you, connect with your word. And Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you, uh, you, you've chosen to dwell in us and to, bring, uh, to teach us your truth and your life and, to, and your presence to come and reveal the word to us and, and the living word to us. And Father, I pray that as we navigate, just, not just today, but the weeks ahead, as we explore what life means to live with you, that we would, we would adjust our thinking that we, that we don't want to live under you. We don't want to live in a, in a place where we are just doing and serving and striving. But I thank you that we can be with you to experience all that you are and to experience the life that comes of knowing you and loving you. And Jesus, we, we honour you and thank you for that invitation and that sacrifice you made to open the way for us to experience that. We, are, we thank you that in your precious name. Amen.